Let's come to Revelation. Can I say, first of all, don't be scared of the book of Revelation. A lot of us are. I think there's no, there's no other book really in the Bible that's like Revelation. There are bits of Daniel and bits of Ezekiel and bits of Zechariah. But it's, Revelation as a book is highly visual with strange beasts and creatures and images and lots of numbers and the weird and the wonderful. And I think we can tend to go one of two ways with the book of Revelation. Either we get so fascinated by Revelation that we become obsessed with it and that is probably not a good thing and we end up actually misunderstanding the whole point of Revelation and making small things big things. That's one extreme. And the other extreme, well, really is to avoid it altogether and therefore you're so scared of it you, you never go near it. So the point of today, or at least one of the points of today, is partly to say, don't be scared of this wonderful book. It's not as complicated as we might think. Revelation wasn't given for the crackpot, but neither was it given for the academic in the theological department either. It was given to the church. So don't be scared of it, but also don't ignore it. Jesus gave revelation to his church, and there's a blessing for those who study it. So if you've got chapter 1 open, look at verse 3. Andrew read it to us from the, um, almost from the Greek, but not quite, the ESV. Forgive me, I'll be using the nearly infallible version, the NIV today. Um, so blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written because the time is near. So you will be blessed if you study this book if you learn from it and if you obey it and take it to heart. One of the keys of unlocking revelation, it's a big thing, isn't it, to say unlocking revelation, as though I'm going to give you some special keys. Actually, the main key to unlocking the re revelation is the main key in all Bible interpretation, which is the Bible interprets itself. So that's, that's, that's not great rocket science. The, if you want to know how to read the Bible, go to the Bible. Because most of the difficult bits in Revelation are drawn from the Old Testament. So John uses imagery drawn from the Old Testament. And whenever you come across something which, which seems slightly odd, get your concordance out. Do you remember books? They, were, they used, to, used to exist on a shelf. Do you remember them? <laughs> the days when we got books out? <laughs> Blow the dust off your concordance or, okay, if you're computer literate, go to Bible Gateway and do a keyword search and find out where that image, where that phrase is used in the Old Testament. And that will shed light on why John uses it. When you understand that original phrase in the context of where it was in the Old Testament, in its original setting, you'll then see why John uses it in his setting, okay? So the key to understanding Revelation is to go back to the Old Testament very often. Another key to unlocking Revelation is knowing the whole of Revelation. I don't mean in absolute detail because most of us, I guess, won't be that familiar with it. But understanding how the whole book works will make it easier when you study little bits of it, okay? So you can locate the little bit of Revelation in the flow of where Revelation is going. A bit like a jigsaw. Do you remember jigsaw puzzles? Did you ever play with jigsaw puzzles when you were children? Yeah? You know, you have a piece on its own, and you've no idea where it goes, have you? But
But if you've got the sort of the box and the picture on the front, well, then you can locate the individual part and see where it, where it's, where it fits in the whole. And it's the same with Revelation. The whole will make sense of the individual parts. It's worth saying that the controversial millennium, the 1,000-year reign that comes in chapter 20, and which so often is the subject of heated debates amongst Christians, whole American denominations have been formed on what view you take on the millennium. And that, so that's the Americans for you. No, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Forgive me if you're an American. <laughs> but it's worth saying that actually that subject only occurs in chapter 20, in that one chapter, and it only lasts six verses. So that's six verses in the whole of Revelation out of 404 verses. So if we've made six verses the key to understanding Revelation... I think it probably indicates that we've got something wrong somewhere, don't you think? And what's more, the millennium isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So whatever you make of the millennium, and we'll come to it a little bit later, Revelation doesn't make much of it, and nor does the rest of the Bible. So I want to say, let's not make that the key to understanding Revelation, because Revelation doesn't, and the Bible doesn't either. The other thing that's worth mentioning by way of introduction is that Revelation is different to other New Testament letters. It is a letter. It's also, also lots of other things, but um, it's a letter. And in the letters in the New Testament, most of the application comes at the end. So you get a letter, letter like Romans, for instance, or a letter like Ephesians. And you get all the doctrine in the first part of the letter. And then... The second part applies all the theology. So you've had the theology, and then it says, okay, if that's true, well, how does that work out in life? That's the second part. Now, in Revelation, it's the other way around. Because John writes to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, and he's applying all that's going to come later in chapters 4 to 22. He's applying at the front end to those seven churches. So if you simply read chapters 4 to 22 without seeing how John applies all of that in the first three chapters, then actually it's likely that you've missed the point. You see? So John tells us in a way how to apply Revelation by giving us seven churches at the start where he applies the visions to real life situations. The letters help us to apply Revelation. Now you'll see... Uh, we're on point two now. There's an outline of Revelation which I've just given you there, which is a, just a simple way of trying to highlight some of the key things, how Revelation is structured. And it's structured around two things. First of all, a series of sevens, and the number seven is significant because it signifies completeness. Okay, so it's structured around a number of sevens and also around a series of visions which God gives. So chapters 1 to 3 are a sort of gateway in, into the whole of Revelation. They're an introduction. They introduce us, first of all, to John, the apostle, who's writing Revelation. They introduce us to Jesus, who appears to John in a vision, exalted and reigning, and tells him to write down what he's going to see and to send it to the seven churches. That's the first seven that we get in Revelation. 
all these churches are in modern day Turkey or Asia Minor as it was called then and they're all facing different issues the sorts of issues that the church will actually face again and again in the last days it's worth saying at this point that the New Testament when it uses the phrase the last days is referring to the time when Jesus ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit so you remember Peter on the, day of, on the day of Pentecost stands up, doesn't he? And he quotes from Joel 2, and he says, you know, what you've seen with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is what the prophet Joel saw all those years ago. And he said, in the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Yes? So the last days begin when Jesus ascends into heaven and sends his Holy Spirit on the church, and they go right the way through to when Jesus will come again. That's the period of the last days. So we're living in the last days. Does anybody ever say to you, do you think we're living in the last days? And I always want to say, yes, definitely, we are. And we have been for the last 2,000 years. (laughs) We may not be in the last, last days, but we're certainly in the last days. The last thing to happen from God's perspective is the coming of Jesus. Everything else has happened that needs to happen. But from God's timetable, the next thing is Jesus' return. So Revelation is not a head-in-the-clouds type of book. It's a feet-on-the-ground type of book to encourage seven churches, real churches, real Christians to persevere and to be faithful to Jesus in their situation. And these seven churches, because because it's the number seven, should alert us to think that it's not just written to them. This stands for, if you like, the church in all time. The situations that are outlined in chapters 2 to 3 are the situations that God's church will have to face again and again and again and again in the last days. So they are seven representative churches of what God's people will always face in this period. Now the next section, chapters 4 to chapter 15, verse 4, we're shown what is happening on earth but from the perspective of heaven. So John the Apostle is called up to heaven and he sees before him an open door. He's told to go through it so he can be shown what must soon take place. And it's as though he's getting to see things from God's point of view. There's an English play which um, I went to see many years ago, actually when I was in school. And the play is called Noises Off. I don't know if anybody's ever seen the play Noises. Have you seen it? Yeah, okay. It's quite a clever play. I don't recommend going to see it particularly. But if you've ever seen it, Act 1 shows you the play, the story. And you start and you go right through to the end. That finishes. And then Act 2 takes you through the same play again. But this time, they turn the stage completely around. And you see the same play, but this time from the vantage point of backstage so you see behind the scene and behind the set and you get to hear what the director's saying to the cast before they go onto stage and you get to see all the mistakes and the mess that's going on actually behind it all looks wonderfully choreographed and beautiful and all very sensible when you see the first act and then you see the chaos that's going on in the second act but the curtain if you like is being lifted And you see things from a totally different angle. And something like that is happening in chapters 4 to 15, where John gets to see things not from 
earth's point of view, but from the control room of heaven. A world that might seem totally out of control is not at all, because at the heart of the universe is God on his throne. God ruling. That's the scene in chapter 4. Chapter 5, we're introduced to the scroll of destiny. And that scroll represents all of God's purposes for judgment and for salvation. And that scroll is opened. The seals are broken. And John sees the second seven at that point. Seven churches, now seven seals, which bind up the scroll. They're being snapped open. And as each one is broken open, so God's will is done on the earth. And then John gets to hear seven trumpet blasts. That's the third seven each one heralding God's judgment on the world. And then finally, he sees a vision of signs in heaven, which again reveal what is really going on behind the scenes of human history. The final section of Revelation is from chapter 15, verse 5, right the way through to the end of chapter 22, where we get to see the final stages of the end of the world. And there's a last series of seven, this time seven bowls of plagues. We get to see Babylon, which stands for godless government, which has been against God all down the years in its arrogance and and human pride. It's been set up to oppose God and his people. And we get to see Babylon finally destroyed. There's the final showdown where God destroys Satan and the evil spiritual forces, where death itself is destroyed and all those whose names are not written in the book of life. And then we're given a breathtaking vision of a new heaven and a new earth. This world as we know it passes away and a totally new one starts. Heaven comes down and God comes to dwell on earth with his people. There'll be no more death, no more crying, no more mourning or pain. There'll only be life. And those who've conquered will inherit all of this and they'll reign with Jesus. They'll see him face to face. They'll be with him forever. Revelation ends with a warning not to add or take away from the prophecy, a blessing on those who read it and take it to heart, a cry from the Holy Spirit in the church, come Lord Jesus, and a promise from the Lord Jesus himself, I am coming soon. And that's Revelation. Well, that's the quick summary of Revelation anyway. That's the outline of Revelation. Okay, let's turn over to um, page 3. In chapter 1 and verses 1 to 20, we get an amazing vision of Jesus. We're introduced to Jesus. And the, the view of Jesus is breathtaking. John begins by writing and telling us what it, what it is that he is writing. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave. That word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. It's the, it's the, obviously, it's the word from which we get apocalypse. And that word means an unveiling. It means an uncovering. So God is giving this book of Revelation as a gift, the revelation of Jesus Christ which he gave. It's a gift to his people. Revelation is often thought to be complicated. You know, you have to be clever to understand it. But actually Jesus' purpose is not to conceal, it's not to hide it for those who are clever or those who have got the key. The whole point of Revelation is to reveal what was hidden, but now Jesus is making clear to all. He's disclosing it. 
That's the first thing. Revelation is a revelation. <laughs> okay, not complicated. Second, revelation is also a prophecy. So look at verse 3, where he says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of the, this, this prophecy. Now, the Old Testament prophets came, didn't they, with a word from God, a message from God. And John is saying here, too, is a word from God, which brings clarity where there may be confusion. God is, is speaking to his people to give clarity from heaven's perspective. So it's a revelation. It's a prophecy. It's also a letter. So in verse 4, John gives the traditional greeting you would give if you were writing a letter at the time. It's written in the style of a letter. And in verse 11, Jesus tells John to take up his pen and to write what he's about to see to seven churches in Asia Minor, the seven representative churches. And notice how John writes in verse 9, he says, I'm your brother and I'm your companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours. So John himself reveals just a little bit of what's going on with him. It seems as though he's in exile on the island of Patmos. Patmos was known as a, a slave labor camp for Roman prisoners at the time. And he's there, he says, because of his testimony to God and his word. So John is suffering for his faith, and the churches to whom he's writing are suffering for their faith too. So the pressure is on. The heat is on. A prophecy, a revelation, a letter, and also, verse 2, it's nothing less than the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Revelation intends to stand as a beacon to give us confidence and hope. But then look at what John saw in verses 12 to 18. Because having heard a voice like a trumpet in verse 10, telling him to write down what he sees to the seven churches, John now turns around and he sees the most awesome person, verse 12. He is like a son of man. Now, if you know your Old Testament, that phrase immediately sounds alarm bells because in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 2 has a vision of a son of man, one who's like us, but who is given all authority from God, who's described as the ancient of days. And John here describes this Jesus this son of man, and it's clear that he's not just a son of man, but he is the son of man from Daniel chapter 7. He's dressed in priestly robes. Exodus 28 verse 4, if you're making notes. With hair like the ancient of days, white as wool, Daniel 7 verse 9, if you're making notes. With eyes that penetrate and with feet the contrast with the flawed monument of King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that statue in Daniel chapter 2. And his voice is powerful. It's like the sound of rushing waters. And it's decisive. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face, indeed everything about him, shines brilliantly. And notice he says, I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. Verse 18. So this is Jesus. Jesus, not as he came the first time. Do you remember as he came? A baby in the manger, humble and weak. But Jesus, not the rejected Messiah hanging on the cross, 
But Jesus, the magnificent and terrifying Lord of all, with power over death and Hades, and no wonder John collapsed in terror before him. But notice how Jesus says to John, verse 17, do not be afraid. Now that's the Jesus of the Gospels, isn't it? Do you remember how Jesus again and again says to people who are terrified, do not be afraid. Oh yes, he's the terrifying Lord. But before him, there is mercy. Well, the Lord of all has a job for John to do. And he tells in verses 19 to 20 what he must do, which is to write all that he sees to the seven representative churches, which brings us to chapter 2 and 3, Revelation 2, verse 1 to 320, and the seven letters. The seven cities where the churches are located are all on the western coast of Asia Minor. And I think we might have, oh, there we are. We've got a, we've got a map up already before I've even spoken. Uh, there we are. The map is there. And uh, here's a map of the seven churches, or at least the seven cities where the seven churches were located. And they're written, the, the letters are written in the order in which you might visit these cities if you were sort of taking a circular tour or if you were a postman dropping off the mail, you know, starting at Patmos, the island, do you see off the coast there? And then going all the, landing at Ephesus and then traveling around to finish at Laodicea. Notice there is a seven-part structure to each letter. Seven again, you see? First of all, to the angel of the church, write. That's how each letter begins. And then secondly, these are the words of him. And John then takes a phrase from the description of the risen Jesus in chapter 1, and he writes this letter from that Jesus to each of the churches. And then thirdly, the Lord Jesus says, I know this about you as a church, the good as well as the bad. And then fourthly, in every letter, there is a, a rebuke from the Lord Jesus to each church, yet he says, I have this against you. But there are two notable exceptions, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Both of those churches, Jesus has nothing bad to say about them. And then, one, two, three, four, fifthly, there's some exhortation from Jesus to do something. For example, remember, or do not be afraid, or repent. And then sixthly, we get the phrase, to him who overcomes. And at the end of that, there's a promise drawn from the last two chapters of Revelation, which give us that tremendous vision of the new heaven and the new earth, the bride of Christ united with God coming down from heaven, their ultimate destiny, their glorious future, to him who overcomes, this is what is waiting for you. So there's an encouragement, an incentive to press on and make sure you're one of those who overcomes. And then finally, each letter ends with an appeal to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Interestingly, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, not to the church that that letter is written to, but notice to the churches. So in other words, we're all meant to learn from this letter, not just the particular church to whom it's written. We're all meant to examine our own hearts and our own church as we overhear Christ's words to them. 
Now, you're going to break up into small groups in just a moment and look in detail at the first two letters, the church in Ephesus and the church in Smyrna. I've given you a headline on page four for each letter to each church. Um, I don't know whether you ever do that in Bible study. That's quite a good, good thing to say. You know, imagine that you're trying to summarize this passage. What would the headline, the banner headline be for this passage? That's quite a, quite a good thing to do sometimes. You've got to su- try and boil it all down into a little headline. And I've done that. You may come up with better ones than I've done. So in which case, let me know and I can improve. I, I'll scrub them out. And next time I do this, I can improve on it. And I've learned from you. Okay. So there's some, some banner headlines, which my idea of trying to summarize what I think is the main point of each, each letter. But the letters begin with the church in Ephesus who've lost their first love and they end with a letter to the church in Laodicea which has become so complacent that Jesus says, you make me sick. What a thing for Jesus to say. Imagine being in the church in Laodicea and you hear Jesus say, actually, your church makes me sick. Stinging rebuke, isn't it? And yet those whom he loves, he rebukes. So you've got the church who's lost this first love. That's the first one. And you've got the church who makes Jesus sick. That's the last one. And in between these two churches are the two threats that churches will face in the last days. What are the two threats? Either terror, persecution from outside, or error, that is false teaching from inside. So either being knocked off, killed, or knocked out, disqualified from the race and not getting the victor's crown, those are the two threats that will face the churches in every age, right across the world and all down history. And by giving us these seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus is showing us these are the dangers that will come to the church again and again and again. In these last days, between Jesus ascending and coming in glory and majesty, his people will face pressure from without and pressure from within. What will keep God's people from falling, either from the the pressure, because of the pressure of persecution, or from the pressure of false teaching, What will keep the church going so that when Christ comes, he will find us faithful and patiently enduring the suffering and waiting for the kingdom? Well, the answer is chapters 4 to 22. 